0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben.
1: Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 193 of the podcast for February 5th, 2014. My guest today is Dr. Mark Jabin, and he's going to be talking about uh, our, our brains and, and lean and change based on uh, some research he's been doing um, from his own personal experiences, and in fact, there's a, a lot of different things he's um, citing in the podcast. If you go to leanblog.org 193, you can find links to uh, books and articles and the things that uh, Mark is gonna talk about here today. Um, he's gonna be talking about ideas, including our, our so-called hidden brain, uh, what, what Mark describes as some of the, the most troublesome features of our brain's operating system, um, how the A3 problem-solving process um, fits well with the way our brains work or should work and, and how to deal with so-called resistance to change. So there's uh, a lot uh, a lot to think about. Um, I think a lot of really interesting ideas here. So hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, as always, you can go to leanpodcast.org uh, or simply uh, leancast.org. Um will save you three letters there. That's one Kaizen that I've done recently. Um, but either URL works um, if you want to find past episodes. And uh, thanks for taking time to listen. Well, Mark, hi. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast and joining us today.
0: Well, thanks, Mark, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to share.
1: Yeah, well, sure. So we're going to talk about, I think, some really interesting things today, um, some research you've done on uh, brain science and connections to lean and change. But uh, before we get into that, can you start off by telling the listeners about your your professional background, your medical background, and, and how you first got introduced to lean?
0: Sure, Mark. So, um, I'm trained as an emergency physician. I've practiced, I I completed a residency in the early 80s, and since that time, I've worked um, as an emergency physician, mostly in small and medium-sized hospitals, mostly rural areas. For 20 years, I was part of a single group in a pretty high-functioning organization that really was getting better and better over time. But somewhere along the late 90s, things sort of began to change. There were a lot of changes occurring in medicine at that time, and um, the relationships in the hospital really sort of started to fragment. And by the mid-2000s, the institution was spiraling down, and in 2006, we sort of became collateral damage to that and lost our jobs. And we were left to wonder, how could we devote 20 years of a career um, to a place and have it come to this? So, uh, because we needed to eat, um, I started filling in at a few other emergency apartments, and what I found out there was that they were struggling with many of the same issues, and I wasn't seeing any of those places doing a particularly effective job at managing those changes. And in fact, a year later, the hospital that I had been at um, lost its Medicare and Medicaid funding, and um, it's devastating for the community and something I'm not sure they've recovered from yet. Um, And so, uh, and and again, that had been a place that was really delivering quite good care, you know, at one time. So, you know, I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. And it started me on a journey um, to find how to better manage change. And in 2008, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand and work there. I was fortunate enough to land in um, Talpo Hospital on the North Island in Taupo. Uh, Shout out to the folks there, Mm -hmm. so especially Julie Eilers, who's the administrator, and Kingsley Logan, who was the medical director there. And they essentially, Mark, gave me their institution as a little LEAN learning lab. I didn't know much about LEAN at the time, uh, but they were interested in trying this, and um, I guess I was the outside American, and that seemed to fit. And what I discovered um, in LEAN was the the first sort of change methodology that, to me, addressed the elephant in the room. Um, You know, what I had seen from my experience is the biggest obstacle to performance um, in healthcare. Uh, so I concluded that there was great value there and opportunity for the U.S. healthcare system. And I think it was during that time, Mark, that you and I first began sharing some emails. Um, yep. And it also during that time, I befriended John Shook, who's the CEO of LEI, mm-hmm. who kindly took under his wing a floundering doc trying to figure all this lean stuff yeah. out, right. as I'm sure John's done for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah I've learned a lot from John as well, yeah. yeah. And at one point, you know, John had asked me what I thought the problem was in healthcare, care. And, and, you know, my answer was a lack of dialogue, and, and his response was, well, lack of dialogue is not a problem. Probably walked off.
1: Did <laughs> you say you were jumping to a solution? Yeah. We need well, more dialogue? or
0: Yeah, well, no. yeah. It took me a while to understand what he meant, you know, which was that, you know, dialogue is a countermeasure, but to what problem? So I kept searching. Um, Recently, I was able to email John, and I think the subject line of the email read something like, at last, the root cause. (laughs) And the root cause, Mark, um, lies in the way our brain operates. If you've seen the cartoon which says, I've seen the enemy and it is us, Mm -hmm. um, well, I've seen the problem, and it's me, or more accurately, it's my brain.
1: So tell us, I mean, so it's it's kind of an interesting insight, okay, so we're, we're... We're, even though we talk about not blaming uh, in 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 lean, I mean, so okay, we're going to blame our brains. That sounds like a fairly <laughs> systemic um, root cause. And so, tell us uh, tell us about the research that, or you know, how how you started looking into this. What why is this important for the listeners to understand some of these insights about the brain?
0: Yeah, I think it's you know, we're all after creativity and innovation, uh, but the fact of the matter is that creativity, and innovation are really hard work and hard to achieve. And the biggest impediment that I see to that is really resistance. You know, we all, reserve, we all observe that people resist change, or at least people, what is it, people don't mind change, they, just, they don't mind being changed.
1: They don't like being changed. Yeah. yeah.
0: And frankly, we dread dealing with it. Um, and what I've learned in my career in medicine is that when I dread dealing with something, it's generally because I either don't understand it or I don't have an effective approach to it. So when it comes to resistance, um, the insight to me was that it lies in our brain and its operating system, and specifically three troublesome features in our brain's operating system. And I think that if once we understand this, then we can use resistance as the tool that it can be and devise countermeasures that are more effective, making our improvement efforts more effective. So hopefully um, we'll have enough time today to talk about one that I've been working on, but also, as I think we, as we work our way through this, I think the listeners will see much that matches their experience with resistance and much that distinguishes um, the lean approach.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, when we talk about resistance to change, I mean, I think sometimes that's um, a loaded term. You know, people, managers will complain that, oh, you know, people are resistant to change and sometimes that means uh, they won't do what I'm telling them to do. Um, and we don't delve into the reasons why that resistance is there. But kind of talk, tell us a little bit about the brain's response um, to, to to new ideas, and and kind of what what some of the sources are of 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 responses that get interpreted as as being resistant to change, as if it's a choice, right? There's some of this that's just happening, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So you know. Well, first, I always sort of give a disclaimer when I talk about this stuff, because, you know, if you're a neuroscientist or you're married to one, uh, you'll find much to quibble with what I'm going to say. But so my goal in describing it isn't really to be scientifically pure as much as it is to give us a framework we can use. So the first thing is that whether we're talking about creativity, innovation, improvement, learning, decision making, all of that is really the same from your brain's perspective. And so we'll need to spend a little bit of time covering some basics on that to understand all this about resistance. So first thing I want to do, Mark, is just give people a mental image um, that I want you to sort of keep in your mind as we're talking about this. And it's sort of a structure to to how this all works. Mm So if you'll do that, start on the left side of your page of your brain and put hidden brain and then arrow over to the middle to prefrontal cortex and arrow over to the right for creativity. So the path to creativity is pretty well specified, and it can't be short-circuited and you can't skip, 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 skip steps and expect to get there. So the hidden brain is where the existing neural connection, connections reside. Um, the prefrontal cortex is where these connections are analyzed when you need to do that. And creativity, the definition I like, is the connection of previously unconnected thoughts. Mm. Um, so the brain doesn't jump straight to making these new connections because, well, it takes a lot of energy to do that, and our brain is very much geared to not knowing if the next meal is coming. So it has devised a system that requires the least you know, caloric intake possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the good news is, um, you know, that we are rational creatures; we are capable of gathering data, analyzing, and acting upon it. It's just that's not the way we make uh, most of our decisions most of the time, and these this occurs what some researchers call the hidden brain. So the hidden brain does this based on these existing neural connections, patterns of recognition and response, which have been developed over millions of years and experience, standards, if you will, um, that are constantly being monitored and upgraded. And it takes in the data from our senses, and if it recognizes a pattern, then it can respond. It doesn't take much energy to do that. The thing about the hidden brain is we don't know what goes on in there. We aren't aware of it. We have no direct link to it. So the only way we know about these decisions is through our feelings and emotions. It's a very rapid communication system. And this works really well, except when we face a new or novel situation where there's no pre-existing pattern. That then becomes the role of prefrontal cortex, which is to fact-check the hidden brain and to be vigilant for um, these outlier circumstances. So your prefrontal cortex can focus very intensely on an issue and bring vast powers of analysis to it, But the problem with the prefrontal cortex is that it's easily overwhelmed. Mm. Um, And researchers believe it can only handle sort of four to nine variables at a time, which is why multitasking is a myth. You know, our brain really can only do one thing at a time. Um, So if the prefrontal cortex evaluates the existing connections and doesn't get a satisfactory response, then and only then is the brain willing to expend the energy necessary to make these new connections. And that's... The aha moment we get when we put things together in a new or different way that works, and when things work, it feels good and right, and it feels that way because we get a release of the chemical dopamine whenever we do something you know that our brain approves of. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: namely, something it believes will enhance our chance for survival.
2: Yeah,
0: right. So, Mark, this leads actually to the first Tolleson feature of your brain, which is this: Um, the brain is not into reality. It's into plausibility. And what I mean by that is it's into making a plausible explanation of the data it receives. Um, And why is that? Because our brain is geared to action, which is to fend off the immediate threat in front of it. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. Because if we spend too much time, you know, analyzing the speed of the saber-toothed tiger, you know, what direction it's coming from, how big its jaws are, do I fight, which way do I run, well, we spend all that time. It doesn't really matter anymore. Right. So um, our brain, and, and even more importantly, the brain will take this plausible explanation and treat it like a fact, even to the point of discounting clearly conflicting data so that it can maintain that story.
1: So so this is kind of evolutionary. This is the fight or flight response that that gets in the way of of that higher order thinking,
2: right? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah.
1: Back in podcast 153, um, I talked with Robert Moore from UCLA, who's a, a psychologist and has looked at Kaizen, and that's one of the things he really focuses on is the idea of you know what what our brains are doing to us, and um, you know instead of telling people don't be scared of change, to recognize that well it's it's a very natural human behavior to be scared by change, and and right. to be aware of that, and and then try to figure out how to how to get through that, you know, his strategy is classic Kaizen is, well, you know, make the change small instead of a saber toothed tiger uh, coming at you. It's just, you know, make the change small and it's just a leaf blowing at you. It doesn't scare you. And then you can, you can think creatively, um, but right. that's kind of the same idea What you're talking about is that uh, our hidden brain, the amygdala will, will take over or get in the way. Right. Right.
0: That's right, Mark. And, and it actually becomes a, a little scarier than that because, You know, we we also can't really depend on our memories. You know, all our memories are not really imprinted, or there's some recent data to suggest that memories imprinted, we just can't retrieve them all. So what we do is we remember the stuff uh, that most impacts our chance for survival. So we have memories that are selected, and then it's been shown that no matter how well memory is imprinted, it can change over time. So the really scary part of this, as you say, is that you can't depend on your brain for an accurate appraisal of the current condition. Mm-hmm. So, when you get feelings that are really certain about something, you should be really afraid because you're likely missing something. Mm-hmm. And if you feel uncertain about something, well, you need more data. So, the question is, where will that come from? So, that leads us to the second troublesome feature of your brain, which is, the hidden brain is actually made up of many separate functions, and each one of those functions has a particular area of interest, and it focuses on that area of interest to the exclusion of the other others, and will eagerly tell you what you should do from its perspective. So when you get a feeling, you know, it's not an arbitrated, mediated, negotiated settlement. It's the loudest voice that wins. Because remember, your brain is geared to act quickly in the face of danger. So those other perspectives are in there, they're just being drowned out. And as you said, Mark, talking about the amygdala, that's your flight or fight stress response area. And Your amygdala is one of these very prominent hidden brain voices, and it's it's focused solely on your individual survival. So there have been very nice functional MRI studies that show that when somebody's expressing a closely held belief, what lights up is their amygdala. But when the same person is considering options and alternatives and other perspectives, now they're processing their prefrontal cortex. So what this means is forget having a fruitful discussion with someone who's in their amygdala. They're just not capable of it, and the same is true for you. So the second troublesome feature is this, which is our default response to anything is from our amygdala. So when we begin to interpret the world, we always start there in the amygdala, which is you know, our personal survival. So our personal survival trumps everything else. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, on these two points, I mean, how would you tie it back to the workplace, an emergency department or a hospital? Um, I mean, I think some of the things people are fearful of, you know, like people are fearful of losing their jobs. Um, I mean, can you think of some scenarios where you, you might recognize when, when people's amygdalas, uh, their hidden brain is, is taking over? How do you recognize that? What can you do about that?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it can be really hard because um, people who are on the face of things resisting something, who are saying no to whatever you're suggesting, they're not necessarily in their amygdala. Um, you could have people saying no to something who are analyzing very carefully and have right. very important dissenting views, and they're in their prefrontal cortex. Um, they're considering options and alternatives and, you know, they're seen in a certain way. You know, on the other hand, you can have people that are saying, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then the, don't follow through. And they appear to be in their prefrontal cortex, but actually they're in their amygdala and they've just figured out that the best way to, to protect themselves is to play along as far as they're willing to play along. So it's not easy at all. Um, and this leads actually Mark to what the third troublesome feature is um, in terms of how we deal with that. Um, because, um, somewhere along the line in evolution, um, people discovered that at times being part of a community would, it, would improve their likelihood of personal survival. So, for instance, it was, uh, you know, I'm not big and strong enough to kill the bison myself, so I might starve, but together we can kill the bison so we all can eat. And so the brain actually evolved an adaptation for this because if you're going to live and work with others, it requires that you be able to acknowledge and accommodate the needs of others. So this is your mirror neurons, and mirror neurons enable us to, for instance, see a picture of a person in pain and be able to feel that pain without having to directly feel it ourselves. So that's really great. That's helping us you know, entertain some of these other perspectives that our plausible explanations want to ignore, uh, because if you, if you remember um, from a little bit earlier, um, your brain will ignore clearly conflicting data um, in order to keep its story intact. But there's a problem here. Because researchers have demonstrated that the more power and control a person has in a given circumstance, the less active are their mirror neurons. So what do we do when we put people in leadership positions and we expect them to be aware of all that's going on? They're less capable, less inclined, less able even to, to do that. And from an evolutionary exp- sense, you know, that makes some sense to me because you know, a leader might be called on to make you know, really sensitive decisions, time-sensitive decisions that favor the survival of the group, but maybe at the expense of certain individuals. And if they're so concerned with those individuals, they they may not be able to act on the benefit of the group. So this effect on mirror neurons makes some sense to me. But when it comes to a complex world that we live in, where we have many people involved in anything and many options to respond and conflicting priorities, um, <clears throat> you know, the best decision in, in in any circumstance involves challenging that plausible explanation and accommodating the needs of others. So this effect of mirror neurons doesn't serve us well in that environment. Mm-hmm. And in, in our world, you know, we have more power control in our lives than at any other time in the history of man. So it's not a matter of who we are. It's any of us would be equally, equally subject um, to that effect.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's, um, I said that that's, what our brains are are doing to us i mean i think back to workplace scenarios uh, you know people move up the ranks through an organization and maybe they get disconnected from the workplace they lose um for maybe for a lot of different reasons the ability to uh, be empathetic to what employees are, are are facing i mean some of that could be as we would say in lean well they're they're not going to the gemba they're not seeing firsthand but it sounds like you're saying maybe you can elaborate on this some of this is What's what's happening to their brains because they have, are uh, because they're in a position of increased formal authority and power.
0: Sure, you know I think I've seen it in my physician colleagues who went from the bedside to the to the boardroom. Um, well intentioned, good meaning people who who understand what the practice of medicine is. But again, the farther away you get from the bedside, the farther harder it is to recall exactly what what goes on there. So yeah, and I think empathy is interesting, Mark. You know that gets a lot of talk these days, but I think what I'm talking about is even beyond, it's, it's more than just empathy, because empathy sort of carries the connotation that's kind of optional. You know, I could be empathetic or not. You know, I can look at this other situation or not. and not. What I'm really saying is that this effect of the mirror neurons is not optional. If you want to be able to get to creativity, um, if you want to be able to get to innovation, it it follows the path through the prefrontal cortex. And if you never get to processing the prefrontal cortex, you'll never get to creativity. So, you know, I think you did a recent um, podcast with Karen Martin, and mm-hmm. she mentioned at the end of that sort of her interest in exploring the role of hope when it comes to improvement. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to that diagram that I, that I posited early on, the hidden brain, arrow to prefrontal cortex, arrow to creativity, you know, what is hope? Um, hope is seeing a path, you know, having a plan to move forward. Um, yeah. You know, your brain really likes the idea that presents a better chance for survival, and we'll respond, you know, with a dopamine squirt. You know, that's why hope is, is so important. And um, you know, I think in a subsequent podcast with Rich Sheridan from Midlow Innovation, you know, he spoke about creating a joyful workplace. That was the right. whole intent of, of their effort. And you know, joy comes when you're able to act on that plan. And you know, your brain really, really applauds that. So, you know, you talked before about what are some of the other scenarios where it happens. So what what do we do in our workplaces? Um, we apply lean tools and PDCA, Kaizen and Kaizen events and Hosh and Connery. And these are all structures that help us clarify a path forward. But this is prefrontal cortex processing. And remember what happens if the other person is in their amygdala. They're not capable of having that sort of participation that prefrontal cortex thinking requires. And so, what do we do? Um, just as you said, we want to hold somebody accountable. Which, you know, as you said, usually means why are not you doing it the way I want you to do it. Or we want buy-in, you know. Well, you know, if somebody's buying something valuable, do you really have to convince them that, that they need to buy that? So and what do these do? Well, these are perceived as threats. And what do threats do? They just force the person deeper into the amygdala. So, you know, if you never get past the amygdala, you can't get to prefrontal cortex thinking and you'll never get to creativity innovation. So that's why, you know, recognizing, responding and reconciling resistance is so crucial it's mm-hmm. what I call the three R's of resistance so the root cause of resistance is not rational it lies in the hidden brain and um, it doesn't respond well to, to a rational approach mm-hmm.
1: so are, are so you talked about um, the hidden the, the different uh, troublesome features as you called them the hi- hidden brain the separate functions are, are there are there any others that you've seen
0: no There's those that, are really the yeah. the main three um uh-huh. And, you know, you had mentioned, you know, in the past you always talk about Dr. Deming speaking of the need to stamp out fear.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think that's what he's really talking about in this regard. Um, you have to stamp out the fear to be able to get to the prefrontal cortex. And I think also this is why respect for people principle is so integral.
2: Right.
0: You know, Bob Emiliani's talked a lot about that. Bob has been really helpful to me in sort of working out these concepts on thanks to Bob. but. You know, I kind of believe the ultimate form of respect really allows, lies in how I deal with resistance. Um, do you remember um, some years ago, you and I were at a conference with Dan Florzone? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think you've had
0: Dan as a podcast. He guest.
1: was a very recent guest. Yes, yes,
0: um, and he said something to us that was really really took me a long time to come to grips with. And what he said was, if he wasn't getting pushback or resistance as a leader, he wasn't doing his job. Remember him saying that? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I thought a long time about about that, and what I what I think I understand now is, you know, remember we don't have a direct connection to what's going on in our hidden brain, but I think I would restate this for Dan and say now that resistance is the one tool we have to where we can gain some insight into the hidden brain. You know, the hidden brain I think is where the point of cause is, if you will, for, for what gets in the way of our improvement efforts. So, you know, if if we want to if we want to move forward, we we better we better embrace it. So. That requires a tool, I think. So um, the tool, I think, is this. There's a scale. That scale has resistance at one end and satisfaction at the other end. And what you need to know is where the person lies on that scale. So that speaks actually to another problem we have, which is what satisfaction is. And I think we've horribly misinterpreted what satisfaction means. Mm -hmm. So we believe, I think, conventionally, that it's about what the other person wants. But what I want is really amygdala thinking satisfaction is really about what people need, and that's a prefrontal cortex process. Um, And when that person is satisfied, we know they're in their prefrontal cortex. So what's an example of this? So you take a patient who's uh, newly diagnosed with cancer, right? That's a devastating bit of information to get. The person's depressed. What are they going to do? They're already putting nails in the coffin. What happens the next week? They go to see their oncologist. They get staged. They get a treatment plan, and now what's their attitude? Well, they're going to fight it. They they have a path forward. They have hope. Um, if you ask a person, is satisfaction dependent on what somebody wanted, then they would never be happy with their oncologist because nobody wants to have cancer. Right. But if you ask them once they have this path forward, are they satisfied? They'll say they are because again, they're getting what they need in that what they need in that situation. Mm-hmm. So to me. Um, You know, what Dan was was talking about is is this. And unless we, again, unless we take on this resistance, actively seek it out, embrace it, you know, work on it, um, we can't ever get where we want to go in terms of satisfactory responses to our situations. And you know, Mark, that that talks also about why the A3 process works. Um, If you think about it, you know, the A3 process, you got to complete the left side before you go to the right. So the left side is all about getting from your amygdala to your prefrontal cortex to getting, you know, what I think is wrong, gathering other perspectives, um, validating the current condition, um, analysis and root cause identification. That's prefrontal cortex thinking. The right side is, of course, all PDCA and reflection, Mm -hmm. in which we either decide that the countermeasure works and we're going to stay with it, or if nothing works, we're opening up the possibility that maybe we need a new and novel response, which is creativity. Creativity, yeah yeah so if we go there prematurely to the right side you know people just aren't ready for it
1: yeah i think it's interesting you you talk about that shift of um what we what we want that survival instinct i want food uh i want safety as opposed to saying what i what i need uh, requiring more creative thinking that's a I think it's an interesting thought. Um, You you mentioned, I just want to mention for for the listeners past episodes if they haven't heard them. You mentioned Dan Florizone. He was episode 180, Um, so you can go to leanblog.org slash 180, and then you you mentioned earlier the myth of multitasking. I actually got to interview Dave Crenshaw, who's the author of of a book called The Myth of Multitasking, uh, episode 100, so that's leanblog.org slash 100. Um, so, thank you for kind of tying together, um, you know, kind of you know, some of those themes from from past episodes that are uh, that are all out there on the website. So, you, so I mean, I'm curious to see a little bit more um, to you know, summarize what you're saying is that the A3 process helps us it, it is because of the structure. It helps us get from kind of reactive, short-term, uh, hidden brain, and and into the deeper thinking parts of the brain?
0: Well, you know, I think that if you think about lean as something that has evolved over many years by many people, you know, keenly observing the way people work and interact and how they work together, and then through millions of PDCA loops, essentially revealed a system that actually reflects the way our brain works. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't have access to all this research and, and functional MRIs and stuff, so there was no way for them to know that this was going on. But it's interesting to me that the, the product of what came out of Lean really is that, that direct reflection to our brain, and I think that's why Lean works so well. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, Mark, the, the benefit of Lean is, is that it is a system to deal with resistance. Um, yes, we want to you know, elucidate problems, we want to solve problems, but in order to do that, we've got to get past this resistance. And Lean, what attracted me to Lean in the beginning was that here, built into the methodology, is a mechanism to do that. It wasn't an add on, it wasn't an extra, it wasn't optional. It was part of what, what you do to do lean effectively. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the countermeasure that I propose um, is even a greater focus on this left side of the A3. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm calling it the engagement kata because it's a routine that sometimes we're going to need um, to gain the participation that we need to do the testing and trialing phase, the right side of the A3. So I don't know. if We have, do we have a couple of minutes. We can delve into that, or yeah, uh, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Let's not
1: tease people with that for, yeah. for future podcasts. Are you saying the the uh, engagement kata? Well, for, first yeah. off, for people who might not know, they might know uh, Mike Rother and, and Toyota Kata. But but what do you mean by uh, first off by kata and then what an okay. engagement kata is?
0: So right. So kata is a routine. So you know, I mentioned before. You know, my experience in medicine is when I struggle with something, it's because you know I really don't understand it or I don't have an approach to it. So if we have an approach, what, we, what we've what created with an approach is a structure to help guide us forward. That's what hope is, the path forward. So Akata is a routine. It really comes out of the martial arts um, regimen. And, um, you know, when you start to do I, I've never done martial arts, but what I understand is when you start to do martial arts, the first step is you follow the form and you learn the form exactly as instructed. So, again, Akata is just a routine um, to help you. Uh, recognize that resistance in this case is there, and then how am I going to respond? What am I going to do? What are the steps i'm going to take um, that will work me through that get me from amygdala to prefrontal cortex
1: you know so mark is as, as you um you know continue researching this i'm I'm gonna put you on the spot and push you to 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 maybe you know write about this or i i don't know if you want to start a blog or uh, a a group i mean uh, you know if if people want to discuss this with you, I guess for one, they can go. Uh, come to the uh, the blog page for this episode. If you go to, um, we we announced that at the top of the show. Um, leave a comment. Um, you know, are, are there other ways that you imagine? Like, do you want people collaborating with you on this, or if they want to discuss this? Um, sure. what, what are some different ways they might be able to do that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I love talking about this stuff with folks. I guess the best way, Mark, is is through my email, which is um, jbenmm, so that's jabenmm. That's J A B E N M M at aol.com. And I think also, Mark, um, we can post uh, attached to the podcast a list of the references that that I've sort of used, the resources that have been helpful to me, and I guess I can also um, include some brief summaries of some of the particular studies that have been so um, impactful to help me understand this.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Well good, yeah, so you sent me those, I will post them on um, on the page of this episode and people can can check that out they can post comments um, you know if there's some good discussion in the comments thread we can maybe get together and do this At some point down the road we've got some, some new insights or some other examples or other questions yeah. um, to share so um, really appreciate you uh, you talking about this mark I think it's really kind of a really interesting topic it gets it, we talk about root causes I mean I guess going um, into the depths of our of our human nature I guess is important you know that you mentioned earlier the respect for people principle I think it's interesting that Toyota's original term for this was um, the respect for humanity system and I think part of that doesn't mean just treat people respectfully but respect what makes us human in terms of you know don't expect people to never forget things don't expect people to be superhuman and it seems like this is a big part of it respecting the way our brains work, and and that is what it is. I guess we can cope, and uh, better understand that leads us to hopefully better lean implementation. So on on that, I'm curious if you have, if you have any any final thoughts you'd you'd want to wrap up on.
0: Yeah, you know, I think um, again, to me, the ultimate form of respect is how I deal with your resistance because it acknowledges that you have a valid view, mm-hmm. and it requires me to rethink my view, um, and and I think that's the most important thing about um, resistance. You know, I. I reflect back to Dan Florzone's comment. You know, if we aren't actively embracing resistance, then we're missing the best opportunity we have um, for the kind of creativity and innovation we need. You know, healthcare is really complex, and there are a lot of stakeholders. Each has their own plausible worldview, um, and they each speak really different languages. You know, um, when John Shook asked me what the problem was in healthcare, I answered a lack of dialogue. The um, countermeasure, but to what problem? And I believe that problem really is is a lack of credibility among those stakeholders. And the root cause of that really lies in this suppressed mirror neuron activity. So if we want to be more successful at shepherding change in our organizations, well, I think we'd be well served by focusing there.
1: Well, great. Well, again, our, our guest has been uh, Dr. Mark Jabin, um, not to be confused with uh, the non-doctor Mark Graben. You know, we have such similar <laughs> <laughs> such similar sounding names, Mark Jabin and Mark Graben. Um, uh there's a fun story there that we'll we'll maybe have to save for another time but but thank you so much for for sharing some of your thoughts and, and insights and research and uh for being a guest here today
0: well mark thanks uh, i i can't uh, express how valuable you've been to my career um or at least our names and you know <laughs> and i'm I, mark i'm really honored to to now be part of the long list of distinguished guests you've had had on the podcast and i hope that the listeners find is valuable
1: yeah well thank you i'm, I'm... I'm sure they do. I hope they do. So, um, well, thanks Thanks again. We'll we'll talk soon, I hope. Very good.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.